This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley Rubric to Mary Poppins from 1964, directed by Robert Stevenson, written by Bill Walsh and Don DeGrady, starring Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke. However, quickly before we get to the show... Next week, we will be starting our month of Best Picture winners with arguably the greatest Western of all time, Unforgiven from 1992, written by David Webb Peoples, directed and starring Clint Eastwood with Gene Hackman, Richard Harris, and Morgan Freeman. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com to sign up for our newsletter, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast, or find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. And, as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. We would really appreciate it. With that, we welcome back our returning guest to the show on her birthday, my sister, Allison Techmeyer. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. And how are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys? You had an okay flamingo-less day for your birthday? I was very upset that the flamingos were gone from the zoo today. The avian flu had them off in seclusion somewhere. Oh, boy. Other than that, the day was good. A, A birthday without flamingos. Whatever shall we do? It was rough, but I made it through. One of the dumbest birds in nature. It is not. Yes, actually it is. It's only uh, actually superseded in its stupidity by owls. You know, I'm going to look that up and prove you wrong because I love flamingos. I'm just citing Ron McGill, the animal expert from the Miami Zoo, from a particular podcast that I regularly listen to. Okay, well, now that we've gone off on that. So, with that, let's turn our attentions to Mary Poppins. Allison, since this is your favorite, what is your relationship to this movie? Oh, man. I can't remember a time not watching this movie. I'm fairly certain I started watching it when I was like a year or 18 months old. And I remember having the VHS in my hand and putting it in the VCR and then watching it and then taking it over to the rewind and rewinding it and then taking it and putting it back and just playing it over and over. And I just have always loved the magic and the the Disney feel of it. You know, that was like one of the first Disney magic things that I remember experiencing where everything is just kind of special and coming to life and, and all cheery. And yeah, it's just it. And it's over years, I've shown it to my students. I've had 11 and 10 year old boys coming up to me saying, hey, can we watch that movie again? I loved it. And so I've just, I've always had this connection with this movie and I've loved to bring that joy and magic to other people as well. And dad, what's your relationship to it? Uh, I used to sit next to this little blonde girl who wanted to watch it over and over again because when I'd ask her what she wanted to do today with me, that was what she'd always pick. 
kids and their favorite movies. Hmm. Yes, we can talk about somebody else and their favorite movie, which would require me to watch Peter Pan five times on a Saturday. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get to that story when we get to that movie. <laughs> you haven't done that one yet? No. no. I think we've only done two animated films up to this point. Wall-E, because we had a guest request for that one, and Shrek. Uh, yeah. I know you guys don't do a lot of musicals either, because it took me a while to find a musical to listen to. Well, you've done two, I believe. I remember, on the one I listened to from January, you guys debated on what a musical actually was. Not, I was in Tom's side, not Dad's on that one. That's fine. So she was right. Okay. Anyway. Sure. I don't remember my relationship to it, except through probably you as well. I remember probably watching it many, many times more than I wanted to as a child. Because somebody else wanted to put it on all the time. I, in fact, think that our VHS tape of this might be worn out by this point. <laughs> I know Mom kept it. It is in a special box along with Peter Pan and a couple of our other favorites. I know Cinderella from Sarah's in there as well. Probably certain Thomas the Tank Engine VHS tapes. And Winnie the Pooh. We watched those Winnie the Pooh ones a lot, too. Yep. We had, we had all the Disney films on VHS. We didn't have all of them. We had a lot Not of Pretty them. much all of them. No, there were quite a few that were missing. Like, we didn't have Sleeping Beauty. We had the Rescuers, Rescuers Down Under. Brave Little had, Toaster. Had the Great Mouse Detective. Yep. Didn't have Fantasia. We had uh, Jungle Book. Bambi. Lion King. Aladdin. Robin Hood. Yep. Snow White. I always enjoyed the older ones simply because it was old actors from radio and TV when I was a kid who were doing the voiceovers. The Sword and the Stone? Yep. So, Dad, what do you think this movie's about, then? This movie is about kindness and love and fun changing everybody or anything. That's ultimately what it's about, that you can be kind to somebody, express love, and express and find fun, and it changes people's lives and demeanor. I have to admit, and you're going to have to forgive me on this one, but it's the anti-Dana Duncan parenting movie. Huh? The amount of times that, oh, you're so gullible, gullible's not even in the dictionary. You need to grow up and learn life lessons because the real world's going to hit you between the eyes eventually. And grinding that jadedness into you. This is the anti-jaded adult movie. I had to counterbalance all these Disney films. <laughs> you mean I can't be a real boy? Yeah. Hell, if I were... Uh, if Pinocchio were real, I'd have a nose about uh, that would run probably to, I don't know, London. Well, I mean, it depends on how often Sarah was Pinocchio. <laughs> anyway, Allison, what do you think? What is this movie about? This movie is about bringing the family back together through a fun and loving way and teaching people that, you know, you don't have to focus on just work or focus on being serious. It's about the family and 
that and bringing them back together and doing that through this love and this energy that's what this movie is well it's a lot about family and whimsy again a youthful exuberance that i think everybody lost but you find it again in that final i don't know if you could call it a confrontation where mr banks has to face up to his bosses and then he just can't stop laughing because he remembers the word supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. I mean, there's there's a innocence and impracticality to being a child, but I think the point of the movie is to remember what that was like and never or not necessarily take it away. I don't I think there is a balance between being the reality of life where, yeah, sometimes we need to put our two pence away for a rainy day and create savings and, you know, be somewhat of a responsible adult. But there are also other times where we need to feed the birds. And it's remembering the balance between the two because once you get into your daily life and you get so narrowly focused on everything that you have to do, whether it's your job or all the responsibilities that you have, or for that matter, you get involved in a big cause. The parents pretty much just left the responsibility of raising the children to the nanny. And as a result, they became estranged from their own children to the point where they didn't know who they were or what they needed. And by the end of the movie, that obviously has changed so that they can be more involved. So there is an element of saving the family unit but by remembering exactly that you can have this balanced life. And I think that's a message that resonates in a current mode where we're constantly talking about work-life balance. Well, I saw an interview that Bob Sherman had done, the one of the, the uh, writers. or Anyway, Bob Sherman said that when he wrote the song, Feed the Birds, Walt Disney was moved by that. And he said, what do you mean by this song? Or what does this song mean? He says, well, to me, this is kind of the heart of the thing, which is that love and kindness transcends things and it can change people. And Disney thought that that was the greatest version or concept he had had of what the real heart of the, the movie was. And so... The, that concept is what he figured and, and built all the songs around leading up to that. That's that actually the feed the birds and the tuppence in the bank is the climactic moment where everything turns because it's kindness that ultimately changes the course of events. I think it's an understatement to say that that was one of his favorites. Apparently, I had read somewhere today during my research that he often would call up the Sherman brothers in order for them to play that song to the point of whenever he would call, they would just start playing it because they knew exactly what he wanted to hear. (laughs) Okay. Sounds plausible. I've read that too. So let's give a little bit of background on this movie then. Dad, do you have your plot summary ready for us? I do. After yet another nanny quits due to the behavior of his children, George Banks, David Tomlinson, needs to hire a new nanny. Mr. Banks advertised for a stern, no-nonsense nanny, and yet the next day, Mary Poppins, Julie Andrews, 
descends from the clouds and proves anything but. Soon, with the help of her friend Bert, Dick Van Dyke, Mary's magical effect takes hold in the house, with everything from helping the children clean their rooms to taking strange and magical trips. However, Mr. Banks' desire for stern and no-nonsense clashes with Mary, and a showdown looms. Thank you. Cast for this movie, Robert Stevenson, director. Bill Walsh and Don DeGrady as writers. Julie Andrews as Mary Poppins. Dick Van Dyke as Burt slash Mr. Dawes Sr. David Tomlinson as George Banks. Glynis Johns as Winifred Banks. Hermione Baddeley as Ellen. Karen Dottris as Jane Banks. Matthew Garber as Michael Banks. Elsa Lanchester as Katie Nana. Reginald Owen as Admiral Boom, Ed Wynn as Uncle Albert, Rita Shaw as Mrs. Brill, Don Barclay as Mr. Binnacle, and Arthur Mallet as Mr. Dawes Jr. Recognition for this movie, Mary Poppins premiered on August 27, 1964 at Grauman's Chinese Theater. The film earned $31 million in theatrical rentals in the United States and Canada during its initial run. It was one of the top 12 grossing films in the United States for 32 consecutive weeks. The film was re-released theatrically in 1973 in honor of Walt Disney Productions' 50th anniversary and earned an estimated additional $9 million in rentals in the United States and Canada. The film was very profitable for Disney. Made on an estimated budget of $4.4 million to $6 million, it was reported by Cobbett Steinberg, to be the most profitable film of 1965, earning a net profit of $28.5 million. Walt Disney used his huge profits from the film to purchase land in Central Florida and finance the construction of Walt Disney World. Mary Poppins was nominated for 13 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Director for Stevenson, Adapted Screenplay for Walsh and DeGrady, Art Direction, Color, Cinematography, Color, Costume Design, Color, Adaptive Treatment Scoring, and Sound. It won for Best Actress, Andrews, Film Editing, Original Score for Sherman and Sherman, Original Song, Chim Chim Cheree, and Special Visual Effects. Mary Poppins also had the number 36 song on AFI's 100 Years 100 Songs, Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, and was the number 6 musical on AFI's 100 Years of Musicals. In 2013, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. Did you know? Did you know? P.L. Travers objected to the casting of Dick Van Dyke and Julie Andrews. She felt Andrews was too pretty compared to the plain, short, and thin lady in the book. Did you know? Julie Andrews was approached by Disney to do the film, but initially turned it down because she had recently found out that she was pregnant. He told her not to worry as filming would not start until well after she gave birth. He then turned to Tony Walton and asked what he did. When Tony informed Disney that he was a set and costume designer, Walton insisted that when Julie came out to L.A. in a few weeks, Tony bring his portfolio. After briefly glancing at Tony's work, he hired him on the spot to design the exteriors for Cherry Tree Lane, which included the Banks House, Admiral Booms, and several other townhouses, as well as all the costumes. Did you know... Julie Andrews was nominated for a Golden Globe Award for her role in Mary Poppins. When she won, this was the end of her speech. Finally, my thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and who made all this possible in the first place, Mr. Jack Warner. 
She was referring to not being chosen to play Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady. Did you know, after Julie Andrews won her Oscar, the recipients and presenters were asked to pose for a picture. She stood next to Audrey Hepburn, who had played Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady, but had not been nominated instead, but instead presented Rex Harris his award for My Fair Lady. Audrey turned to Julie and said, Julie, you really should have done My Fair Lady, but I didn't have the guts to turn it down. Julie said that she completely understood, and the two became friends. Did you know, Julie Andrews did not feel that she deserved to win the Oscar and hid her award in her attic for many years. Did you know that Mary Poppins' wigs drove Julie Andrews so crazy that she ended up cutting off most of her hair to make them work? Did you know, P.L. Travers phoned Julie Andrews on the morning after she gave birth to her daughter, Emma. Julie was still in the hospital. This is what Pamela Travers said. This is Pamela Travers. I understand you are going to be Mary Poppins. Well, talk to me. uh, Julie explained, I just had a baby yesterday. I'm feeling a bit out of it. To which the notoriously prickly author replied, Well, you're far too pretty, but you do have the nose for it. Did you know that in Saving Mr. Banks, the movie, Peel Travers, played by Emma Thompson, begins tapping her toes when she first hears Let's Go Fly a Kite. However, according to Poppin's songwriter Richard M. Sherman, Feed the Birds was actually the song that broke her. Did you know, after seeing the film on the night of the premiere, a distraught Travers went to Walt Disney and demanded that the animation be cut from the film. Pamela, that ship has sailed, Disney replied, before walking away. Pamela Travers feud with Walt Disney would continue up to and beyond her death, prohibiting Disney from adapting any more of her books and vigorously protecting the stage rights to Mary Poppins. She would eventually turn the rights over to British theater producer Cameron McIntosh in 1993. Did you know Travers' disapproval and anger over the inclusion of partially animated scenes in the film caused her to weep by the end of the 1964 Hollywood movie premiere of Mary Poppins? In a letter to her lawyer, Travers described her horror over what she had seen at the premiere. As chalk is to cheese, so is the film to the book. Tears ran down my cheeks because it was all so distorted. I was so shocked I felt that I would never write, let alone smile, again. In a rare 1977 interview, P.L. Travers commented on the legacy of the film, I've seen it once or twice, and I've learned to live with it. It's glamorous, and it's a good film on its own, but I don't think it is very like my books. Did you know, according to Julie Andrews in her autobiography, Homework, A Memoir of My Hollywood Years, P.L. Travers never said a word to me about her opinion of the film. She did send a note to Walt in which she called it a splendid spectacle and complimented my understated performance. High praise. Did you know the Bird Woman was a special role? The Bird Woman, who appears feeding the pigeons at St. Paul's, was played by an actress called Jane Darwell, who was one of Walt Disney's favorite actors. Darwa was actually living in a retirement home when the film was made, but Disney was so determined to have her in the film that he tracked her down. She was so flattered she took the part. It was her last film before she died. Did you know the London landscapes were added after shooting using a process called glass shots or mats? The artist created these matte shots by painting on glass, leaving a blank or clear space in which the live-action film could be reinserted. The glass and film were put together and refilmed as a composite, This was done for Feed the Birds and Step in Time, as well as a few other areas. There was only one camera in existence at the time that could combine the matte shot and live film. Of course, it was conceived, owned, and operated by Disney.
Did you know Mary Poppins holds the record for the longest Disney film in print? Mary Poppins is the Disney film that holds the record of having the longest imprint status on Vizio. It was released on VHS in 1981 and has been re-released several times since, so much so it has managed to stay in stores since then. Not once has Mary Poppins been out of print on video or DVD. So with that, we'll take our first break and we will be right back. All right, best performance. Allison, what did you have? Julie Andrews, of course. I mean, she this launched her career. She was completely new to film, just comes in complete innocent, not knowing how to do any of this. And I think she just nailed it. I mean, I can't think of anyone else who I could imagine being Mary Poppins. Um, she really made the character. I also had Julie Andrews. I don't think there is a bigger musical star of the 1960s than probably Julie Andrews between this movie and doing the stage performance of my fair lady. And then you throw in obviously the sound of music, which I think is her most iconic role, at least to the lay person, the general public. I think that she defines the movie musical of the sixties. And this is right among those that keep her up there. It puts her on another level, but her ability to be stern without being off-putting, I think, is the difference in this movie. Yes, she's obviously practically perfect in every way, and yet you don't feel that that's somebody just putting on airs. That is somebody who recognizes their greatness. There are a lot of pieces, I think, that in the wrong hands, a certain Mary Poppins character would come off as egotistical and self-centered and overly mean, I think. But for whatever reason, she's able to straddle the line between all of those and not go past the point where she would be unlikable, which you obviously need this character to be likable. Of course. I mean, she won the Academy Award. You can't say enough. It was a very controlled performance. She didn't go overboard. She didn't go over the top. She was very restrained in her performance. Uh, She played it just perfectly for what the character required. And she was by far the glue that held the the film together. One of my favorite quotes from the book that I was referencing earlier is she says, if I happen to catch the film these days, I'm struck by the ease that came from total ignorance and flying by the seat of my pants. And I think that's part of it. She just was so at ease with the character and she just brought it to life in a way that just made it so easy and acceptable. And it just felt like it flowed and was, that was just Mary Poppins. Well, I think there becomes a certain level of melding to a character and a performance And in this particular case, I have to imagine that you really can't see somebody else. I think that's part of the, I think that's part of the reason why you had so many troubles with the sequel. It just wasn't the same without Julie Andrews as Mary Poppins. I just, as much as Emily Blunt is a great actress and performer, I'm sorry that it was just Julie Andrews is Mary Poppins. Okay, so then let's go to Best Secondary Performance. I have a unique one down. I went with Petros Vlahos, a guy we probably won't mention at all for the rest of this entire film. And yet, 
He's the guy that invented modern green screen technology that they used to define a lot of the magical parts of this movie. Yes, they did the overlay of the glass and the animation and uh, the painted stuff that you were talking about. But when she's pulling the coat rack out of her, or the hat rack out of her bag, or and the little boys underneath trying to motion, where is this coming from? There's nothing under this table. And he does it like four or five times. All of that is used with green screen technology. Anyway, this becomes the basis for everything that we do in modern green and blue screen technology that's used from everything from Star Wars to Game of Thrones. And so I think he needs to be recognized. To Forrest Gump? (laughs) (laughs) We love you, Mom. Anyway. They got such a great paraplegic actor. How did they find him that or such a good actor without legs? <laughs> yeah. Certain family moments. Anyway, I went with him as my best secondary performance for that reason. He invented an entire new technology that's come to define the industry for 50 plus years afterwards. I had him down as an honorable mention. I couldn't quite go to the extreme of a secondary performance. So who did you go with then? Richard and Robert Sherman. I mean, they wrote so many iconic songs. Songs that people, you will have people, if you sing the song or play the song, will recognize the song who don't even necessarily know what film it's from. They've become like so much a a part of pop culture and culture in general that they have existed well beyond the film itself. I have somebody who also doesn't get a lot of recognition, the children. Um, but I specifically chose the man who played Michael, Matthew Garber, just because his reactions to some of the things that are happening and his just pure innocence through it all. Um, often actually they didn't tell the children what was going to be happening. And so their reactions are complete natural like in the scene where they are getting their medicine on the spoon they didn't tell them that the medicine was going to change color or be different so when you see their face and the shock on it that's all just their them their actual reaction and i think that the children played a big role in this that we often overlook because of such big characters like dick van dyke and julie andrews and i mean with matthew He had things where he was terrified of heights, just utterly terrified. And they actually had to pay him 10 cents per shot when they did the scene where they were laughing on the ceiling. And you can't tell at all that he was scared or anything. And this is this little boy who's like five years old. And I think he did a fantastic job. And Julie talks about when they lost him and how tragic that was because he was such an inspiring young actor. We often overlook child actors in some of these films that we cover, but there is often a understated quality that has to be made for them to be believable. It's incredibly difficult to get good performances out of child actors just because they don't have all of the emotional nuance that you're going to get from somebody who understands what the difference is between five different types of happy. (laughs) Yeah. Most charismatic. I went with Dick Van Dyke. I mean, how can you not love Dick Van Dyke after this movie? 
from his one man band and starting out the the movie to being Mary Poppins's best friend, always taking or taking care of the children and popping up whenever they need him almost more than Mary Poppins, to be honest, or the fact that uh, he ends up being probably one of the best dancing chimney sweeps London's ever seen. <laughs> Not to mention that he played one heck of a real of an interesting old guy who, when he's trying to come into the room and he's having such difficulty traversing the last step, I mean, that in and of itself is precious. None of that was in the script, even. He made that all as they were filming it. I mean, he's 96 years old. He's an American icon, an American treasure. I don't think he gets nearly the the dues he should. No, I would agree on that. But it's also that we haven't really seen him be be a pop culture icon for probably 20 or 30 years at this point. Well, he did that show with his son, Diagnosis Murder, back in the 80s and 90s. That's really the last thing he's done. But he's kind of renewed friendships. He was friends with the whole group of Carl Reiner and and uh, Mel Brooks um, and Norman Lear and such, that group of all in their 90s that were hanging around in Hollywood. And even that group has diminished significantly. So it's just now down to Norman Lear, Mel Brooks, and him. Yeah, and I can't imagine all of them are going to make it too much longer. Unfortunately, it'll be an end of kind of an era and an end of what really got me interested a lot in the television and show business and movies. Did you both also have Van Dyke? I also have Dick Van Dyke, and having watched it a hundred times as a child, uh, he's just that whole, yeah, he's very charismatic, he's very open, he's very fun, but then having read now Julie Andrews' autobiographies and hearing what she would say and, like, how she'd go on set to do when they're walking down the path in the chalk drawing and how she was kicking up her feet and the way that he just kicked up his feet just made everything, like, ten times more lively and the and just how he would act and the way that he would perform things just brought everything more to life. And then one of my favorite things is one of the stories she told. And it's just, so Dick wanted to play Mr. Dawes senior so badly that he begged, begged Disney to let him do it. And Disney made it, didn't want him to, he said he was not the right age. It wasn't going to work. So Dick decided that he was going to go and get stage makeup and he was going to do a test run for Disney and it went by so well that it, he was, like, unrecognizable, and it just was hilarious. So Disney said, all right, well, what do you want? And Dick said, well, I'll do it for free. <laughs> but Walt Disney was so wily that he actually said, well, I'll take you up for free, but you also have to pay $4,000 to the California Institute of Arts in order to be the part. So Dick Van Dyke actually paid $4,000 in order to be... Mr. Dawes Sr. And I just think that's... <laughs> I mean, why? <laughs> I'll be honest, the whole Mr. Dawes Sr. thing and adding that part in seems a little Peter Sellers-like. <laughs> okay. Well, just think about it. Playing multiple parts in the same movie, hamming it up, playing an absolutely absurd character. 
Dick Van Dyke wanted it to be a secret, so if you watch the end credits of Mary Poppins, it comes up with some sort of gibberish name as to who played the character, but if you, it's an anagram for Dick Van Dyke. Hmm. I did you not... turn to me during it and said, is that Dick Van Dyke? And I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> I love that in Mary Poppins Returns, he looks just like his he did in all the stage makeup for... Mr. Dawes Sr. I love that. <laughs> well, and then he still gets up on the table and dances. Yes. In his 90s. I mean, he's great. Yeah. Actually, I his had... Cockney for... accent. I'm sorry, that Cockney accent. <laughs> well, I know. It's considered one of the worst accents in ever. And he's apologized for it, too. Well, J. Pat O'Malley who was a longtime character actor, taught him that accent. And he blames O'Malley for it to this day. Is it any worse than Eliza Doolittle as played by, well, I guess dubbed Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady? Whoa. Well, and Julie yeah. Andrews said that she tried to work with him on his Cockney accent because she had had to do one for My Fair Lady on the stage. And so she tried to help him with it. And she said it was just not happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah actually my most charismatic uh goes to julie andrews simply because you could tell at that moment that this woman had class that she was a movie star that it didn't matter what she did as long as she was on screen your eyes were going to be drawn to her and it exists to this day you could see her on television she's what like 84 86 years 86. old and she you, she just has a presence. There's just something about her that says, I am class. You need to pay attention to me. If you're playing at home, that is Dana's number eight bingo. My number eight bingo? Of common phrases that Dana uses often. She just has a presence. <laughs> <sighs> I was told I have to keep this uh, G for this G-rated episode. For all yeah, the children but, potentially listening in cars. But, yes, but I'll just do this. And for those at home, they can imagine that there's just one finger being held up at this it's moment a in time. victory salute, folks. Yes. <laughs> We're number one. We're number one. I am number one, but uh, it's number one in everyone's heart. Anyway, let's go to best scene then. I have hiring a new nanny, a spoonful of sugar, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, I love to laugh, feed the birds, at the bank, and let's go fly a kite as my nominees. Does anyone have any others they would like to nominate? Chim Chimney. Step in time? Yeah. I mean, with... Them all flying around the roof and all the dancing. I mean, it's one of the best numbers in the show. With all, that choreography is amazing. Apparently it took a week to film. Oh, it did. And all the technical stuff that Julie Andrews talks about and how they had to go about all that and all the soot that they had to use. Fun fact that you don't have to put in there, but she had a wart on her thumb 
and that she couldn't get rid of. And what that week they had so much soot, whatever was in the soot that they were using actually cleared up her wart. And she had been trying to get rid of it professionally through doctors for years and they couldn't do anything about it. So she hid her thumb for most of the movie. And then after they filmed that scene, the wart was completely gone and never returned. So she started showing her hands again. Well, apparently that sequence took quite a while to film the first time, but they had to do it a second time because there was a scratch in the film. She didn't talk about that, but that doesn't surprise me. She had a horrible time because there's one part where she has to spin. So they put her on a literal turntable and they spun her on this turntable until she was so sick. I think you commented on that while we were watching the movie the other day, Dad. Yes, I said, and now she throws up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the she talks about how many weeks of practice those guys had before she even joined in in order to get all of those stunts and all that choreography. and Yeah. So, Dad, did you have any other nominees? No. All right. So then, Allison, what is the best scene? Spoonful of Sugar. I mean, that one's iconic. It's everyone, whether it's the song or the... But the snapping and the clothes flying around and the toys it's that was that's the best scene i have uh at the bank because to me that's the pivotal moment of the the movie it changes the direction of the movie it changes the characters it has an indelible mark in the film uh it was done real well as we've already commented dick van dyke's presence in that scene was just you know phenomenal um, there's just so much that was good about it that uh, I've, I have that deemed as my best. I'm surprised for as much as you two have been harping on Feed the Birds as the emotional climax of the movie, I thought for sure both of you would go with that scene. I'm going to go with it. I just think there is a component to it that hits you a little bit different than the rest of the movie. The rest of the movie is happy and joyful, and yet for some reason they put this emotionally filled song right into the heart of the movie towards the end that somehow changes the temperance going into the final section, the last half an hour. And I really think that I'll get to this in my eventual rewatchability score, but the movie doesn't take off till you get to spoonful of sugar and it kind of drags in the middle, but really the finishing touches of this movie that are probably the best and end it better than it probably should have is about the point where you get to feed the birds. Favorite scene for me is let's go fly a kite. Again, it's a happy, joyous ending. You get Mr. Banks finally redeemed. The family's back together and they're going to do a family activity, which is what you've been waiting for for the entire rest of the film. And instead of being depressed and having this somber ending because he just got fired, you have this just joyful exuberance that's, shared among all of them my favorite scene is let's go fly a kite i just love how it wraps everything up but it still leaves you with that so you have that sense of excitement that the family's back together but then as you watch mary poppins from watching the children from the window and you just have that sense of like she's happy that they're back together but she's sad because she's gonna miss them and that's just it's it sums up the whole movie in such a way that just really tugs at your heart in so many ways. Mines feed the birds. 
to me, it is the emotional moment of the movie and by far is my favorite. Just means more than anything because ultimately it is about kindness and love um, and being able to change people and hearts. Most indelible moment, Dad. Well, I had a hard time picking because I love Let's Go Fly a Kite, but just Ed Wynn bouncing around on the ceiling of Uncle as Uncle Albert. It just, I love to laugh. I mean, just, I always remember that scene uh, whenever I think of Mary Poppins. So I had a very difficult time deciding. So I'm not going to. I'm going to just say them both. The moment I remember most for me is the very last part where you see Mary Poppins and she's talking to her umbrella and the umbrella says, that's gratitude for you. Didn't even say goodbye. And Mary replies, no, they didn't. The umbrella goes, they think more of their father than they do of you. Mary says, that's as it should be. Umbrella, well, don't you care? Mary, practically perfect people never permit sentiment to meddle their thinking. Umbrella, is that so? Well, I'll tell you one thing, Mary Poppins, you don't fool me a bit. Mary says, oh, really? The umbrella then says, yes, really. I know exactly how you feel about these children, and if you think I'm going to keep my mouth shut any longer? And then Mary closes his mouth and says, that will be quite enough of that. Thank you. She opens the umbrella and flies away. I just love that. I mean, that's the part, when I think of Mary Poppins, I think of the umbrella, and I think of her, and I think of that scene shows with how much she cared about the kids and it's the moment I remember it's and then as she flies away I mean that's this when you look at a picture of Mary Poppins it's of her flying away yes witches land with brooms magical nannies fly away with umbrellas but that's the iconic symbol of Mary Poppins is her flying away at the end of that movie it's not Because you ask a person, tell me one thing about Mary Poppins, and nine out of ten times it's going to be a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Okay. And the other person's just wrong. Any picture you see, anytime you Google Mary Poppins or Mary Poppins artifacts, it always is Mary Poppins holding the umbrella and flying away at the end of the movie. Because of course she has to. She's British. I went with spoonful of sugar. It's the most indelible thing about this movie. Literally, I think there are people that know that phrase without knowing who Mary Poppins is. So before we get into the rest of our show, let's take another quick break and we'll be right back. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Unfortunately, we do. A rural divergence in age. Tyler Sanders was a 18-year-old American actor, was in 911, Lone Star, and Just Add Magic. He passed this past week. Also, another actress, which, quite frankly, I was not even aware she was still alive, uh, Maureen Arthur. Um, She was in the Broadway adaptation of uh, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, uh, The Love God, A Man Called Dagger. She did a ton of television shows. I, I, I am a huge fan of Hogan's Heroes. I was when I was a kid. I'm watching it again now just in syndication. Um, She played Lily Frankel uh, as a repeat character on that show. She passed away. She was 88 years old. She had a very successful long career, both in stage, television, and film, and uh, was working within even to the last couple of years doing some 
parts as older women on Broadway. Quite the divergence in age, as you mentioned, 70 years difference between the 18-year-old and the 88-year-old, but certainly no less impact on their passing. And if it wasn't clear by last week's episode, I am putting the obituaries as clickable links. If you would click on the name in the show page that is uh, available underneath in the show description of each of these podcasts, you can find our entire list of notes. But in the In Memoriam section, if you just click on the name, it'll take you to a obituary for the person if you want to know more or want to see what they look like, any of those things. So you can go right there. So we remember these two with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. All right, let's go to best funniest lines. First one for me, one that's already been mentioned. In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun and snap, the job's a game. Winds in the east, mist coming in, like something is brewing and about to begin. Can't put my finger on what lies in store, but I feel what's to happen all happened before. This is a line that I'm going to use at some point, possibly to a judge. First of all, I would like to make one thing clear. I never explain anything. Yeah, and then be held in contempt. As I expected, Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Mrs. Banks, though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group, they're rather stupid. Wow. Take the low-hanging fruit. Open different doors. You may find a you there that you never knew was yours. This is one I actually think you could use in some type of federal briefing. That's a pie crust promise. Easily made, easily broken. People who get their feet wet must learn to take their medicine. Oh, I have to do it. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. The medicine go down. The medicine go down. Okay, we don't need to read it like we're... <laughs> Vincent uh, Price... You, you don't need to read it like he's doing the music video for ha, 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 ha. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. The medicine go down. The medicine go down. You still, you're trying to do it and you sound for like kind of calculated. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. The medicine go down. The medicine go down. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in the most delightful way. Anyway, Mr. Banks, I suggest you have this piano repaired. When I sit down to an instrument, I like to have it in tune. But George, you don't play. Madam, that is entirely beside the point. Now, I'm going to read this quote and you're both going to immediately know why I've read it. Skipping them. Allison, by the way. Go ahead. Sorry. Sometimes a person we love, through no fault of their own, can't see past the end of their nose. That's the one I was going to do, because... Alright, I can pick a different one. I'll pick a different that, one. Think that one, and just think of who potentially that could address. I have more. I have plenty more. 
Well, I'm out. Part of the problem with this movie is, is that so much of it is done in music, and I don't feel those are quotes. Those go in the best song category for me. Childhood slips like sand through a sieve, and all too soon they've up and grown, and then they've flown. Okay, any others for either of you? I have more yet. No, I'm good. I'm done. All right. A British bank is run with precision. A British home requires nothing less. Tradition, discipline, and rules must be the tools. Without them, disorder, catastrophe, anarchy. In short, you have a ghastly mess. I think his phrase would be, keep calm and save money. (laughs) My other one is, Mary Poppins turns to Bert and says, you know you can say it backwards, which is docious alley expi... Istic fragicalarupus, but that's going a bit too far, don't you think? And Bert says, indubitably. Also, who uses indubitably? Bert, who's a chimney sweep, who knows language that should be like at Oxford instead of in Cockney. It was actually ad libbed, so the day they filmed that scene, Tony Walton walks in and goes, You know, wouldn't it be funny to say that backwards? So she ad libbed that whole part. And so did Bert. Like, they just made it up as they went. Fair enough. All right. Allison, I'm just going to turn it over to you. Dad and I can't really do best song justice in the way that you can. So give us whatever you want for best song here. All right. Well, I narrowed this into multiple categories here. So best song is Feed the Birds. It's a classic. It's go-to. It was Walt Disney's favorite. It was Peel Travers' favorite. It was the song that... as Dad said earlier, kind of turned the movie and made it into what it is. The most memorable songs, though, that was Spoonful of Sugar and Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Both of those songs, if you even start to think about them or you say the names, even children today know those and go to them. So that's like the most memorable and iconic out there. The most important song in the movie, I think, is A Man Has Dreams, because that's where the it turns and it shows the turning of the of Mr. Banks and it turns him in from where he's so negative and he's so down on everything and it shows him turning and it really is that change in him. My favorite song is Let's Go Fly a Kite. And the weirdest song in the movie is Sister Suffragette, which is only added because they wanted what was the woman who played Mrs. Banks? I forget her name. Glennon Johns. Thank you. She didn't want to do the movie, so they wrote her a solo and put that in there so that she would come and do the movie. So really, that's the only reason it's in there, and it's kind of an odd song. So that's kind of how I broke that down. All right. So we ready to go to the Stanley rubric? Sure. I'll do my best. Well, that's all we can ask for. I'm assuming you want to go last? At least to start, because I'm not sure I understood some of this correctly. I tried, but... All right. Dad, do you want to go first or second? Sure, I'll go. Legacy for the industry, I gave it a five. The technology, as we've talked about, the green screen concepts, how the film was put together, there's uh, the way it was filmed in general. There was a lot of techniques and a lot of things that permeated The critics actually really enjoyed the film. We gave it great marks. The public enjoyed the film and did well in general and really liked it. And it had an impact over a period of time. It became a popular film, both for release on 
uh, VHS and then on DVD. So the legacy, I give it a 4.5. There's some decline to extent of the film itself, the songs and some of the catch phrases and words like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious have lived on. I think some people will remember those without remembering the film. So that's why I gave it a point down or a half point down. So 9.5 total. I had a hard time because instantly when I think of this film, I don't necessarily think that this has like one of the high legacy marks for a movie that we've ever had on the show. And yet this seems to have spider webs out from it in a lot of different directions. When you want to talk about the inventing of the modern green screen from this movie that was invented for this movie, and the fact that we've basically had it for 50-plus years on everything from Jurassic Park to Lord of the Rings is a event that happened because of this movie. Now, it's possible that it would have happened in its own time anyway, but still, you got to give it extra points for that. Created movie stars out of Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke has almost no negative reviews by any critics anywhere. And I tried to even give it points down on the audience front of it because I think that this movie has waned a bit in popularity over time, that the average person may have heard of this movie, may have had a few songs from it. I don't know how many kids are still watching this movie. Realistically, because it's not the latest Minions or Pixar movie, so it's hard for me to tell, although I don't spend as much time as Allison does around little children all day. So she can possibly correct me on that. But even then, when you talk about the fact that the proceeds from this being one of the most profitable movies of the 60s era basically goes on to create Walt Disney World as a result, it's got tangible effects even on that. So I'll go and match your score, both five for industry and a 4.5 for the audience. I can't quite get to a five on the audience just because I know there are some other movies that have a little bit higher margin on what the audience effect has been. And uh, so I'll end at a 9.5 overall as well. I give it a five for the industry because I also know how much this really impacted where movies went from there. It wasn't just the green screen stuff, but it was some of the creating the talking bird and using, mixing that animation with the live action and mixing some of the magical scenes where they have them up on the roof and they're floating around or where the toys and all the clothes are going. That's all new. And one of the things Julie Andrews says is she said, it is amazing to me that even now one doesn't see the technical difficulties in Mary Poppins that were ever present while shooting. So often the film called for something that had never been achieved before in terms of special effects. It was up to Walt's brilliant crew to figure out how to make it happen. And that's true. Like, there were so many different areas that had never been explored before. And this movie opened the door to so many different things and brought that to life. So I think that was really important. And then it won so many awards. It's still the number one movie of all time for how many awards it won for Disney. No movie has won more awards for Disney than Mary Poppins. So I think that is very important to note. And then for audience, I give it a 4.5 just because there is 
a group that may not have seen it. I do know that most children still are seeing it, whether it's their grandparents showing them or their parents. Almost every child has at least heard some of the songs or watched the movie. I There's very few children I've encountered. There are some, but very few who don't at least have a base understanding of one of the songs or at least have heard the name Mary Poppins before. But it has, you know, it it is for a certain age group and it's not usually one that you go back to in like as an adult. So like the it is waning a little bit in some of that. So I gave it a 4.5. So before Dad asks, Allison, would you help me with the math? 9.5 for everyone, so that's an average of 9.5. Thank you. Impact significance. So I have to say, on the Julie Andrews part of it alone, I think this would get close to a 5 for the industry already. But I don't think that there's any way that this isn't a 5 industry when you talk about all the technical aspects, how well it was rewarded and recognized by the industry at the time. It's an overall 5. And it feels like we give out way too many 5s for the industry on a lot of these movies, but... Maybe that's with some reason. So then it's a matter of, okay, how did the audience receive this? The fact that it was one of the most popular movies of the 1960s and definitely one of the most profitable goes a long way too for me here. It doesn't sound as good when you examine like $31 million doesn't sound like a lot, but adjusted for inflation, that was actually quite reasonable. And given that this was probably the biggest movie of their decade, one of the most recognizable movies by people at large for a long time creates a legacy character and goes on to uh, spurn one of the most popular movie stars of the 1960s. I'll go for a 4.5 on that as well for, again, a 9.5. I'll go next, I guess. I understand the comments, but when you look at the films that were being done, there was a transition going on at that point in time from the more traditional films to the more culturally aware films culminated in the late sixties where it was a counterculture movement. So I think that this film had significant impact from a technological point of view. So from the industry, I I think it was more, well, this is just Walt Disney. I don't think it had a real impact on other films other than the fact that Julie Andrews went on to do The Sound of Music. It's not like there was a huge amount of other people from the film who went on to uh, do other stuff. Dick Van Dyke had a fairly successful career on television and on stage later on, and then again in television later on. So I'm not going to give it a full markdown for the industry, but I went with a 4.5. And from a, this was a film that resonated with young families, people with small children. I don't think it resonated nearly as much with the general public and the baby boom would have all been 18, 19, 20 years old at that time. I can't imagine that group which was the largest generation to in America uh, up to that time flocking to see this necessarily. So I wanted a four for that simply because, yeah, it did very well, but I don't think it had as broad of an impact over the general populace as other films. Uh, I think it was very niche. And so to that extent, I went with a four. 
I have 8.5. For industry, I gave it a 4 because it did launch the careers of Julie Andrews and also her husband at the time, Tony Walton, who went on to do a lot of big set designs and costume designs after this. But also Julie Andrews, it launched her career. And one of the things that she talks about is how Walt Disney, during the making of this partway through actually brought in two gentlemen and showed them raw footage of what they were doing. And those two gentlemen actually went on to hire Julie Andrews before she even finished working for Mary Poppins to do her two next films, the Americanization of Emily and the sound of music. So it, I mean, it did launch her in so many ways because Disney really wanted to help push that forward for her. And so he helped to create that for her. But at the same time, like, it didn't, I don't know, it it won a lot of awards and stuff, but I don't know if right after that it changed so much right away. I mean, over time, I think it changed things, but I, I don't know if it really just, it was a Disney movie, and that was how it was. Now, as for audience, I gave it a four because, I mean, the audience perceived it well and made a lot of money and won a lot of awards and people loved it. But at the same time, I don't think it reached all age groups and I don't think it reached every demographic out there either. It's kind of a specific group that I believe was going to go see it. So what's your final score? Eight. Okay. That's an 8.67 average between us. Novelty. Somebody want to go first? I gave it a 9.5 just because it was so different and it really was, I mean, this was what changed everything. It was the Disney magic. It was that green screen. It was the mixing of all the different types of technology and the types of ways of doing movies and putting it all together and creating all this new things that had never happened before. And it was a movie that wasn't like anything else that had really been out either. And so I think it really, I think it was a cool new thing that really had something out there. I tried to think of this. I mean, it's a traditional musical, okay? So I can't give it a lot of extra bonus points for being a musical in and of itself. The real novelty came about with the interplay between live action and animation which hadn't been done much and at least not been done at all to this extent. So I gave it bonus points for the combination, but I didn't give it a whole lot more for the the actual fact that it was a musical itself. So I went with an 8.5 for novelty. So I think between the technology, the discovery, I guess you could say, or first debut cinematically for Andrews, this could be leveled up. But to create all new original music for something that was not a musical, and at the time, most of the musicals that were being produced, and there were a ton of them during the late 50s and 60s, this was one of the few that was a truly original musical. And so by that standpoint alone, and the fact that we already said that this is very different from the book source material itself, I have to give this pretty high grade So I went with a 9.5 as well. Dad, did you have an 8.5? Yes. That's a 9.17 between us. 
Classicness. So I'll start off this one. I'm going to make a proposal for classicness as to a new criteria that needs to be added onto the back of this category. And I was already thinking about it when we revisited Casablanca a few weeks ago. The age of a movie. I think that when we talk about classicness, we should also be talking about agelessness. So the longer that a movie has gone without really aging out of favor or becoming problematic, or even having an associated crew or cast member that taints this in some way, should count for something. I mean, the amount of movies that we've taken new examinations on because one of the actors was a dirtbag, or there was some scandal behind the scenes, or some material that was written into the movie just doesn't sit well with modern culture. This is one of the few films where you can't really say much about that. And so given that this is still a major legacy character for Disney, that it had a musical produced and still won the Tony Award for Best Musical only about 15 years ago, and that it was still popular enough to garner a sequel 54 years after the original, I'll go with a, and this is going to sound redundant for me, but a 9.5 here as well. We have an extremely strong female character who dominates the script and the storyline. We have just a certain aspect that there's nothing that's aged or cringeworthy in the entire film. The only thing I could possibly say about classicness is I have to give a small demerit of a half point for Van Dyke's Cockney accent. I mean, it's just so bad. So I went with a 9.5. And for those of you playing bingo at home, there's a certain aspect to it is the number two on your list. (sighs) That was for calling me baldy. Well, if the shoe fits, or in this case, the hat. It's not completely bald, so you could have said balding. I went with a nine because this is something that still is relevant and it's still things that something that children are watching today. Grandparents are showing it to their kids and children are still aware of it. I was walking down the street today in a tiny little town and they have like this thing that has all these different characters painted all over it that are like Harry Potter and Hunger Games. And then it's got things like Clifford and the Berenstain Bears and there was Mary Poppins on it. I mean... That means that she's still relevant in some way, but it, she's been around forever. And I mean, this is the, like I had said earlier, this is the longest in publication, I think I, it was, for Walt Disney. Like it was the, in print, it was the longest imprint movie. And it, they chose this one to be the first one they put on DVD because they knew it was going to sell. They knew it was going to be that movie that was going to create even more for them. So I think it's a nine, but at the same time, it does still have a niche audience and it's not going to be one that you watch over and over and over again necessarily anymore. But so I had to dock it a little bit for that just because there is a few, well, maybe I do a 9.5, I guess, because I mean, it's such a good movie still. There's nothing negative about it that it doesn't resonate with today's culture there's nothing that you have to necessarily be like oh i'm sorry kids this is you know and have to like sugarcoat something or you know change something about it it still sits just fine all right with you raising it back to a 9.5 the math is pretty easy it's a 9.5 rewatchability this movie drags during the middle <laughs> that entire animation sequence is way, way too long. 
I didn't need the penguin dance. I didn't need her and Bert dancing for like 20 minutes to one song. I mean, the best parts of this movie are probably about the first 30 to 45 minutes and then the last 45 minutes. And if we can just cut out like big swaths of the middle and make this about a two hour movie instead of a two and a half hour movie, it would be a much better movie in my opinion. I will give it just above neutral for me at a six just because I really don't care to go out of my way to see this, but I'm not going to object to it if somebody has their kids watching it or something else. It's just, this is not something I'm going to be seeking out while I still am single and have no children. It's just not that type of movie for me. Let's just comment, because I think while we were watching it, because Tom and I watched it together over the weekend, he was home for Father's Day. He asked, when was the last time I saw it? And I'm trying to think, and I'm thinking, I think the last time I watched it is when Allison was in junior high and wanted to watch it, and we watched it as a family. So it's been like, I don't know, 20 years, 25 years. And so it's a good film. I have no objection to it. If it's on, I'll watch it. If somebody wants to ask me to play it, I'll play it. It's just not something I'm necessarily going to jump out and go, oh, I've got to watch this at least once a year. And my category on that is is that's, you know, the average of being rewatchable is a five where I don't object or have a problem or complain is a six. And I'll go with a six for that reason. All right, Allison, this is your favorite movie. I have to assume this is a 10. No, it is not a 10. I've watched this movie so many times that it's to the point for me where it's harder to watch because I do know it so well. So I gave it a 7 just because wow. It is watchable. I watch it once a year and then but I don't go trying to watch it except for I try to make a point of watching it once a year because it is my favorite movie. But I think any more than that and it's just not you, you don't get as much out of it anymore either. And it is one of those that you show to children or you show, and they usually watch it once, maybe twice. It's not one that they're going to sit and anymore, at least sit and try and watch over and over again. So as much as I love this movie, it's just not as rewatchable in today's society anymore when there's so many other things out there. So that's a 6.33 average between us, but I have to follow up on a question from that. Can it really be your favorite movie of all time if it's a seven? I mean, your favorite movie of all time should probably be a Desert Island movie. Like you're stranded and you only get to watch one movie like repeatedly for the rest of your life. And if you're saying that this is a seven, boy, I'd argue- There's no movie in this world that I would watch over and over and over again without losing my mind. I'm sorry. Okay. And I have watched Mary Poppins. I mean, I watched this movie so much. I literally own, like, the the VHS version. I own the 40th anniversary, the 45th anniversary, the 50th anniversary editions. I own the special editions with all the bonus features. I have watched every Julie Andrews interview about this. I have now read her biography. I've Like, I have done this to death, and I still watch it. I still do, once a year. But it's not like I'm going to watch it over and over and over and over again anymore, because it's not that same for me as an adult as it was when I was a kid. I still love the movie, and it's still my favorite, but it's it's different now. Fair enough. I'll uh, quit bugging you about it. 
All right. So then for audience score, we had an 89% from Google users and an 86% from Rotten Tomato users for an 8.75 score overall. So to repeat the categories here, we had a 9.5 for Legacy. We had an 8.67 for Impact Significance. We had a 9.17 for Novelty. We had a 9.5 for Classicness. We had a 6.33 for Rewatchability and an 8.75 for Audience Score, giving us a final score of 51.92 and currently placing it on the list between Die Hard and Three Idiots. Hmm. Okay. So very similar scoring to last week's movie. Remaining questions. So the only question that I don't think is answered either by the books or by the, the sequel movie, which I did see and I happen to like, is what happens to Bert? Yeah, I have no idea on that one. I guess I never really thought about it. I don't know. He picks up four more jobs. He's such <laughs> a central character to the movie that you would like to know kind of how his story ends, but he's only supplementary to getting the children, I guess, to buy into Mary Poppins. I don't know. Is it kind of weird that a chimney sweep would just hang around your house every so often? In uh, Edwardian England, yes. Well, that doesn't really narrow it down. There's like seven periods of Edward. No. Edwardian England is set in the early, the turn of the century. I see. It's after Victoria dies. All right. Any other remaining questions? For me, I guess, uh, having watched this as a kid and watched it for years now, it's always, where did Mary Poppins come from? She doesn't just, you know, come into, pop out of thin air. Where did she come from? And where did Mary Poppins go at the end of the movie? Like, where does she go next? So you're one of the few people that really would want a Mary Poppins origin movie? Yes, I'd love to know where Mary Poppins came from. I'd love to know, because the next one follows up, like, what, 30 years later? Where was she all of that time? Like, where does she go? She just hang out in the clouds? Knitting. I think she does a lot of knitting. Maybe. Okay, I, I just have one, which is, I've seen this film so many times, and I've often wondered, where in the world do the bank examine or the bank executives find kites and how do they decide on that moment in time to go and fly a kite <laughs> well also if your father died why would you be out on the middle of a random street in a random park flying a kite instead of preparing to funeral preparations or the day-to-day -day operations of the bank yeah i i just don't understand. <laughs> I guess if you guys want to fly a kite when I die, you know, feel free, I guess. I don't know. I mean. Well, it's not so much of flying a kite right after you die so much as, I don't know, you'd probably write it in somewhere that we have to do something really absurd. Oh, just wait. I have it all. I have it all mapped out in my journal. I'm going to record my own eulogy. Uh, that's probably not going to fly. To play at the, to play at my funeral. You don't need to. I've been writing your eulogy for 15 years. Oh, gee, thanks. I thought we weren't allowed to kill you off anymore. Well, I'm not killing him off necessarily, but you can't be too prepared. <laughs> that's what I've said. <laughs> you always got all upset with me. And so on that happy note, any final thoughts for the week? No. Hearing none.
Thank you for joining us, Allison. Again, happy birthday. Yep. It was an interesting uh, time. Uh, let's see, what was that, 29 years ago? 29 years ago, yes. Yeah. Your brother came in to see you for the first time, and the first thing he said was is he turns, looks at the TV, and says, Hey, Dad, the Phillies game's on. And that was about the last time I cared about anything Philadelphia sports. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for having me on, and you guys will hopefully be on again another time. Okay. We look forward to it. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be starting our month of Best Picture winners with arguably the greatest Western of all time, Unforgiven from 1992, written by David Webb Peoples, directed and starring Clint Eastwood, with Gene Hackman, Richard Harris, and Morgan Freeman. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com to sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 